Thank you. Thank you for uh, making this a part of your, your morning. I was thinking about Derek's uh, announcement, and it, you know, these shoe boxes are more than just for us. You know, it's a wonderful opportunity. You have, you have friends and neighbors who maybe they've never been a part of a church in their lives, maybe they've never much thought about that, that would like to do something with you. People every, everywhere we go, people want to be involved in something, helping other people. So this is a wonderful opportunity on that Saturday. If you invite for you to invite friends or neighbors or families who maybe don't have a church home or maybe never even thought about having a church home to come and join us for the packing of those boxes. That just provides a great opportunity. And it really also got me thinking about the no food box as well. I, I think I'm going to put a box outside my door that says food only and just kind of see, kind of see what happens with that. But I want us to look at our memory verses this morning. I had the privilege this week of of spending a little time with Arlene McVeigh, who's not able to, to be here, but I know she joins us uh, on the live stream every Sunday, and I got to do our memory verses with her, so I know she's working right along with us as well to memorize these together. And what we're trying to do is, as we memorize, to get God's Word planted in our hearts. And so let's, uh, let's try that again, beginning in James 1, 19. Understand this. My dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the consciousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts. For it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. Do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to God's word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. Wow, great job. Very good job. Yeah, we're going to add one more verse to that, and uh, then we're going to work on that. We've only got a couple more weeks in this James study, so we're going to work our way from 19 through 25, and we'll have two weeks, two weeks after we add 25, just to add all of it together. But I hope it's been beneficial for you. I hope it is one of those things that, again, our, our deepest desire is to have God's Word planted in our hearts. And memorizing passages of Scripture like this one, uh, maybe you have had a week where you found yourself needing to be uh, slow to get angry or a reminder of being slow to speak. But, but these are wonderful things to, to change the pattern of thinking in our hearts and minds. So I'm hoping that as we've memorized this passage together, it'll be the first of many that we want God's word planted, planted in, our, in our hearts and, and minds as well too. Because we have said, looking at a passage like this and especially even looking at what it means to to be doers of the word and not hearers only, to, to, to follow God's word and put it into practice, that the only protection you and I have from fooling ourselves is really living under the authority of God's word. That we want God's word to be preeminent over all of our thinking, all of our emotions, all of our actions. We want it to guide and teach and instruct and lead us in every area of our lives. That is the only hope you and I have of not being deceived because we don't even know sometimes how deceitful our own desires and motivations can be. 
we, we can think that we might have the purest motivations and the purest desires until we realize in a lot of those cases, if they're contradictory to what's revealed to us in Scripture, they are not good desires at all. They are not good motivations at all. We might even think that we're doing the right things for the right reasons, and they're even spiritual things. But our hearts can be deceptive, as we've learned. Our hearts can, can deceive us in so many ways that we always want to submit our desires and our motivations and our hearts to sit under the authority of God's Word. And that's really where our passage is going with us this morning. So if you would... Let's open up to James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of James chapter 4 as we, as we address this, this issue of our desires and our motivations. And what we want to remember, even as we begin, is, is we don't want to be deceived even about our motivations. We don't want to fool ourselves even about our motivations. So beginning in, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come closer to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Wow. The tone of this passage really kind of escalated a little bit, if you noticed. It seemed like the tone really became much more emphatic, a lot of imperatives. There's a real sense of warning in this section. As a matter, just in these short verses, there are 11 imperatives. There are 11 things that James is telling the reader that deserve their attention, that deserve their focus, that are very important. We notice in our translations, the translators add things like exclamation points all throughout this to help us understand and to hear that tone the way that the original readers would have heard it as well too. It's a a challenging section that lays out, first of all, what the problem is, 
and then seeks to help us with the answer. It, it's addressing our motivations, but our motivations really are an indicator of, of our heart condition. Our, our motivations really are revealing our heart's true condition. So as much as he's talking about their motivations and being honest about those motivations, he's also revealing to them something about their hearts that needs to be addressed. Now, I, I have spent a lot of time around church in my life, which means I know a little bit about boiler maintenance and heart conditions, right? And I have learned over the years that there's a lot of similarities between heart issues and plumbing and electrical work. Stay with me, it's true that for most heart issues we have, we either have a plumbing problem, something is clogged up and needs to be unclogged, or we have an electrical issue, something's not firing the right way. And the different heart treatments that we provide for people, sometimes they deal with plumbing issues and they're unclogging arteries. Sometimes they're electrical issues where we have to figure out why some of the electricity is firing the way it is. Why is our heart beating in irregular sort of methods? Why is it our heart is out of rhythm in so many ways? And in this particular passage, I think James is helping us really think about our motivations in context of what our heart condition really is. And I got to tell you, as we look at a passage like this, the condition is bad, but the prognosis is really good. The condition of our hearts that he's addressing here is bad. It's not good. We're being stress tested here in the look at our heart, and it's going to expose a lot of things that we need to consider. It's going to expose a lot of things about our motivations and what's really coming out of us. It's going to expose what these concerns are, whether they be plumbing or electrical in our hearts. It's going to reveal those things in a stress test for us. And that's where, that's where he begins. He's, he begins in verses 1 through 3, talking about the condition that their hearts are in. He's, he's going through what the, the condition of the symptoms are. Talks about fights among them and war within them. Talking about both the external and the internal role that our desires play. Not only do they wage war in our interpersonal relationships, they also wage war in us personally. And if not addressed, they can even destroy us spiritually. When he talks about how we, how we ask for things and we don't get them because we ask with the wrong motives and, and in our, it, it affects our prayer life when we're asking for things the wrong way only because we want them to give us pleasure. He's saying what's being revealed here in the condition of our hearts is the brokenness that exists in our interpersonal relationships, the brokenness that exists inside us personally, and even the spiritual brokenness we feel has to be addressed. Our heart condition has to be addressed. He, he goes on in verses 4 and talks about this condition, and he uses some strong words. He says, you adulterers. Boy, that escalated quickly, didn't it? But he's writing to a group of Jewish believers who would have been well familiar with this picture of spiritual adultery throughout our Old Testament. Throughout Scripture, this picture of God's covenant faithful love to us. Like a, like a loving husband to his, to his wife. And every time the people refused to follow God and rebelled against them, and, and the prophets speak to this picture of the spiritual adultery of God's people because they've, they've acted like a promiscuous wife or they've, asked, they, they've rebelled against him in so many ways. So he uses that, that powerful word of adultery. 
And actually, there's another word we could use here as well, too, and that's just as powerful, and that's idolaters. This idea that they have idols as well, that we might have idols of our heart that we're seeking after, that are skewing our motivations, that, that we're following and seeking. Sometimes it's an idol of pleasure. Sometimes it's an idol of control. So it, it can be any number of idols. And, and to, to help us think through that, I came across this great book this week called Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. Brad Bigney is a free church pastor just up the street from us in Florence, Kentucky. And I think you'd really enjoy this. He really has a humorous way of, of sharing his own stories and situations as he helps us through think through these idols of the heart and these things that we pursue after. Uh, if you read this, you're going to find he references James 4 through most of it. So a lot of the things that are addressed in this passage show up in this particular book. This book, as you know, my favorite resource is Hoopla, available through the local library. Uh, you can find the audio book on Hoopla. I think the ebook is on Hoopla as well, too. And the first person who can grab me after this can take this copy with them as well, too, if you would like to take a look at it. But it's a great reminder of the, the, the heart condition that you and I have and the twisted motivations that can easily take place when we demonstrate ourselves to be idolaters of God and adulterers of God when we reject Him, when we move away from Him, when we follow, dare I say, when we follow our hearts, when we follow our own motivations, when we don't, when we don't surrender those things to God's work and His movement in our lives, to sitting under the authority of His work. So he lays out the condition in 1 through 3. He talks about it in, in 4 through 5 again. But there is some beautiful news. There's a, there's, a, there's a wonderful thing that happens here. Again, the condition is bad, but the prognosis is also good. And we start to see that prognosis moving from verses 5 through 6. So as much as he's, he's warning them and pleading with them, he now is going to move into a series of those, like we said, these, these 11 imperatives. But I want you to hear first what the good news is. It would be a mistake, if you're familiar with this passage, it would be a mistake to now focus on those 11 imperatives apart from verse 6. That would be an awful way to spend our time this morning. To feel like now you and I have an 11 item checklist for better living that we can walk away with. That would be, that would be a mistake this morning. What we see in verse 6 is the glorious prognosis that says as much as we have behaved in a way that acts like the scripture has no meaning, as much as uh, that we have rejected and rebelled and been idolaters and adulterers, as much as that's true, that God is passionate in five, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him, and he gives grace generously. Please don't miss that. If you like to write in your Bible, I would underline verse 6. If you're like and take notes, I would rewrite verse 6 next to this passage. He gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, and he's quoting Proverbs 3.34 here, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That the ability for our hearts to be transformed, the ability for our motivations to be changed, 
begins with the gift of God's generous grace. Apart from his generous grace given to us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we put our faith and trust in him and receive the Holy Spirit. This is just a horrible, overwhelming list of spiritual to-dos that you and I will never, ever match up to. Please don't miss verse 6, that God gives the grace for our hearts. That God is the one who has given us this grace through Christ, and he has given it generously. He gives it, but he also says, to the humble. And that's what begins this next section of dealing with what does it mean to be humble. So in verses 7 through 10, he's going to start to unpack what the solution is here for us. He's going to show us what the solution is. And in verse 7, some of the translations say submit, because I think that's the most appropriate way to describe what's happening here. That God is calling us to have submissive hearts, but he's giving us the grace for our hearts to be submissive. I think the translation we read wanted us to see how the humility was carried through. That's why they begin, verse 7, with humbling yourself before the Lord, to, to see the connection between the grace of God for the humble and this call to humility in 7. But I think a better word is this word submission, because you and I hate that word. You and I don't like that word. We, we like to push back against that word. And that, I think, is the picture of what's taking place here in this very first of the imperatives, is to submit ourselves to God. You and I struggle with submission. We like submission when we agree and it's what we want. Uh, when someone calls us to submit and it's what, it, was our, it was our choice, it's our favorite, it's our pick, then we're all good with that. When someone calls us to submission and it's something we don't like and we don't recognize and we don't agree with, that is where you and I really struggle. But that is the beginning point for what it means to follow Christ. Is that submission to God. It's the surrendering of the authority. It's the looking to Him and to Him alone for our leadership, for our guidance, for our authority. This is the picture of sitting under the authority of God's Word. We see it even down in verse uh, 11. We're talking about it's not our job to sit above the law and determine whether or not it applies to us. Our job is to sit under the authority of God's word and ask him by his generous grace to help us understand, to help us apply, to help us live in a way that pleases and, and honors him. This, this picture of submission. And I know, I've, I've heard some folks say that they submit to no one but God. But I've got to be honest. God puts a lot of people in our lives he calls us to submit to. God puts a lot of people in our family and in our, in our communities and, and in our government. He, he gives us a picture of that submission. So for us to say, we don't submit to anybody but God, we're not really submitting to God if we're not submitting to the people he has placed over our lives. And it's a picture of gospel faithfulness when we demonstrate that level of submission, not only just in salvation, but also how we live in a way that, as Scripture says, we make the teaching about the Lord our Savior Jesus Christ attractive in every way. That is a, a core principle of what it means to be in Christ is one to act in submission. Author uh, David Pollison 
also describes submission as the common call and core identity of the believer in Christ. The common call and the core identity in Christ. Not something that we can just dismiss or only apply to our lives when it works for us, but truly something that as we live under the authority of God's Word, to be submissive to Him changes the way that we think about these relationships. So there's, a, there's a call for our hearts to be submissive, but God gives the grace for our hearts to be submissive. There's a call here for our hearts to be to be for our hearts to be faithful. If you look down, he starts talking after uh, verse seven about resisting the devil and he will flee from you, drawing near to God and he will come close to you. There's a there's an internal and an external picture here of of washing your hands, you sinners, and and purifying your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. If you were thinking back to chapter 1, that idea of having divided loyalties or a double mind is, is on display here. That the call to be faithful, this call to resist the devil and to have our hearts washed and purified, both our external hands and our internal hearts, there is a picture here of what it means to be faithful. And we know this faithfulness takes continual activity in our lives. This faithfulness is not something that is established once when you came to Christ and now is a set it and forget it sort of faithfulness. It's a daily and continual kind of faithfulness. Makes me think of Romans 12 about presenting our lives as a living sacrifice. That it's a daily and continual activity for the believer to live a life of faithfulness when we are constantly resisting temptation, resisting the lies of the devil, coming close and drawing near to the heart of God and hearing His voice the loudest in our lives, allowing His Word to be implanted in us, to live lives of both external and internal purity, and to not live like divided people. That's the picture of faithfulness. That's what it means to follow Christ, is to live a life of faithfulness. But I have such good news. Please, don't forget verse 6. He gives the grace generously for our hearts to be faithful. It's not a, you better get out there and and straighten up and fly right sort of faithfulness. It's not a, well, you better get to the end of the day and have more times that you drew near to God than than you resisted the devil. It's It's not that sort of a scorekeeping approach. It's a reminder that He gives the grace generously for our hearts to be faithful. And that is such good news. I I don't know, and maybe I am the only one, but my heart fights against me a lot. My heart fights against what I know to be true and good and right. And maybe it's just me, but I doubt it. That it feels like sometimes our, our hearts are waging war against us, even for this picture of faithfulness. Sometimes I feel like as a believer, it's even more painful when I sin because I knew better. I sometimes feel like those who don't know Christ, when they sin and rebel against God, that, that well, they don't know better in many cases. They know something's not right, but they don't know what God's called them to. I know, and I'm still stupid. I mean, sin makes us stupid. And we forget things that are true and good and right and and joyful. 
We trade them for things that are sad and pathetic and short-sighted. It makes us stupid. But this call to faithfulness here, this call is not a... It's this picture of how God's grace is overflowing in our lives to give us the power to resist the devil. It gives us the opportunity to draw close to God, to, to, to be able to come before Him and have our, have our hands washed and our hearts purified and for our loyalties to be no longer divided and to not live as double-minded people. That is such good news. It is good news when I rely on the grace of God. It's bad news when I rely on my own efforts. When I rely on my own personal strength or my self-discipline or my stick or whatever I want to call it. It is bad news when I rely on myself. But when I lean in to the grace of God that He generously gives us, generously, think about that word again. He's not stingy with His grace. He's not stingy with the call for you and I to have submissive hearts. He's not stingy with the call for you and I to have faithful hearts. And thirdly, I want you to say, he is not stingy with the call for you and I to have repentant hearts. This is a good thing. This is a really, it might not sound good when you read this through the first time. When you see words here listed like grieve, mourn, and weep, um, even the last way the New Living translates, eight, be miserable, that's not exactly what uh, looks good on your coffee cup for your life verse. Be miserable. But how does he describe that? He said, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. In that section, he's talking about the goodness of God in breaking our hearts over our sin. The goodness of God of leading us to repentance so that we, we will turn away from the garbage and the stupidity of our sin and we will turn to Him and receive His grace fully. To be given joy, to be able to turn from that. Repentance is a wonderful gift. Conviction for sin is an incredible gift of a loving God. Imagine what it would be like if God's Spirit did not convict us of our sin. We would continue to live in joyless despair that looks an awful lot like that horrible condition of hearts that are quarreling and fighting among us, waging war within us, and even destroying our ability to relate to God in prayer. Because we're not even praying for the right things in the right ways. But His grace calls us to repentance. His grace calls us to grieve and mourn and weep for our sin. That is a good thing. Please, please know that when we ever get to a point where we no longer mourn for our sin, when we are no longer miserable for our sin, then we have normalized our sin in a horrible way that is destroying us from the inside out. We should find great joy in the conviction of the Holy Spirit over our sin. We should find joy in mourning and weeping because it's that sort of mourning and weeping that leads to repentance, that leads us to know the full grace and the joy that God has for us in what He has. So for our hearts to be 
repentant, to take on that repentant posture, to grieve over our sin. That is a good gift that He is providing for us here. It is a good gift that comes generously through His grace in verse 6. So, God is the one who gives us grace in our hearts for our hearts to be submissive and to be faithful and to be repentant. And lastly, I want you to see that He gives the grace for our hearts to be obedient. His grace helps us follow Him and obey Him. He talks about how our relationships with that, we speak evil against one another, we criticize and judge one another, we even find ourselves criticizing and judging God's law, and it is not our job, I love how it phrases it here, It's it's not our job to judge whether it applies to us or not. It's our job to obey the law. It's our job to be obedient. It's our job, by God's grace, to be obedient to His Word, to allow it to instruct us and lead us and guide us, and to help us live lives that please and honor Him. Because when we do, that changes those motivations. When our deepest desire is what will please and honor God, when our motivation for what we do and how we live and how we spend our time is asking the question, what will please and honor God? What will bring glory to God in this situation? It transforms our hearts in new and incredible ways. It transforms our attitudes in incredible ways. I am no, I, I can't continue to be self-seeking. I can't continue to deny the truth. I can't continue to live a lie when I'm living my life in obedience to His Word. But He gives me the grace for that. He gives His grace generally, generously for my heart to be transformed. It's a heart condition. The problem with many of our motivations, the problem with being led astray or misguided or or fooling ourselves by our motivation is truly a heart condition. And apart from Christ, we know that the condition is bad and the prognosis is worse. But in Christ, there is hope because even though the condition is bad, the prognosis is so great. A friend of mine uh, a couple years ago had to have a pacemaker. He had had a, a lifetime issue with heart issues. And his, his issues were electrical. He always had his heart firing at different times and in different ways. And that, some of you who have experienced this know just the unsettling of the arrhythmia and your heart's offbeat and it's beating against you and it's challenging against you. And, and probably for 40 years of his life, he was getting different procedures done to help Okay, how do we keep this part of your heart from working against this part of your heart? And, and at some point in that way, you know, if you're familiar with this kind of stuff, they install a pacemaker because they want that pacemaker to kind of help reset the rhythm of your heart to get it back on rhythm whenever it's fighting against itself. But something interesting happened as this man continued to kind of fight, fight against his heart and, and to fight against the, the pacemaker in his heart where they they found out the best thing for them to do was to take away the heart's ability to beat on its own and make it completely dependent on the pacemaker. So instead of the pacemaker assisting the heart, he gave up all control of his own heart to the pacemaker. There was so much battling of his own heart, misfiring and firing at the wrong times and getting out of rhythm and all the... 
it became such an issue, the only way they could help him, and he actually described it this way, they had to, they had to kill my heart. They had to kill my heart and put in the pacemaker and make me completely dependent on the pacemaker for the beating of my heart. And when I thought about how my heart battles against being submissive, and I thought about how my heart battles against being faithful, and how my heart battles against being repentant, and how my heart battles against being obedient, I realize, you know, my heart has to be killed too. My, my heart has to be completely handed over. My heart has to be completely surrendered. My heart has to be totally dependent in order for it to give me life and to beat the way it was supposed to beat. In a broken and fallen world, my heart does not work right. And even sometimes feeling like a, a, a pacemaker or those kind of things can, can help assist in the beating of my heart right. It's not until my heart is fully surrendered, till my heart is fully handed over, that it no longer beats on its own. It now beats because it is guided and directed. And it finds its life and everything apart from itself. You and I have hearts that, as Scripture said, are often divided. And those divided hearts show up in fooling ourselves about our motivations. But it's only when our hearts are completely surrendered, when they are completely given over to God's Word, to His Spirit, to His authority in our lives, can our hearts ever beat the way that they were supposed to beat. That's my prayer is that we would, we would stop, if you know the terms, arrhythmia. We would stop having our hearts beating out of sync with what God wants. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't allow those parts of our heart to beat in contradiction or contrast. But our hearts would be fully surrendered. Because for our, for our motivations to be truly what God wants, our heart condition must be transformed. Our heart must be given fully and completely over to God's lordship in our lives. It must be surrendered completely to Him. But oh, we've got good news. This isn't a matter of you getting a new diet, which I know none of us are for that. This isn't a matter of you and I getting a better exercise routine. Or maybe somebody somewhere discovering a new medication that's going to make this all better for us. What we have is verse 6. We have the God who gives grace generously.
We have the God who wants our hearts fully and completely. We have the God who will change the rhythm of our hearts to beat with his. And he has given us that grace generously. Would you pray with me? God, you are so good and you are so generous. God, we, we admit, I admit, so many times we're just stupid. So many times we know better and yet we're still drawn away from you. So many times we're disappointed about our actions and our reactions. So many times we're deceived about the motivations. Even, even when we think we're doing spiritual things, God, we are so easily deceived. God, I pray that you would take our hearts, that we would give them fully and completely, that we would surrender them totally to you, and they would beat with you and by you and for you. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can be drawn to you. We thank thank you that we can be forgiven by you. We thank you that we have our only hope in you. And God, we pray that for each of us, whether we have gathered in this room or are watching from online, that our hearts would be yours fully and totally, completely. In your glorious name, amen.